Philosophy. Descartes. Debate. The Mepropod. 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 The awesomest discussion podcast in the history of the human species. Oh, yeah! Let me tell you of an interview with an old man emu. He's got a beak and feathers and things, but the poor old fella ain't got no wings. Aren't you jealous of the wedge-tailed eagle? I'm better to da-da-da. Well, the eagle's flying round and round to keep my two feet firmly on the ground. Now, I can't fly, but I'm telling you, I can run the pants of a kangaroo. But da do 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 He can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can run the pants of a kangaroo. That case. Welcome to Member Report number 136, March 31st, 2015. You know, Greg, you have opened almost every show, the actual opening lines of almost every Map Report in history, all 136 of them, are actually in that case. And yet, <laughs> no one who is listening to the show, who is not us, ever hears what proceeds in that case but it's what, like what but it's time stamping do you remember do you remember uh what is the case do, do you remember the 1980s wanna... do you remember the yes, 1980s when uh when you had these old like home videos and everyone always forgot to turn the time date stamp on the video off that's that's what this is this is giving people was that forgetting or was that realizing that they'd all have alzheimer's one day <laughs> that they, <laughs> they were like pre they were presetting their like forgetfulness yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact i have an interesting thing about that i want to say but anyway welcome to everybody uh we hope everyone's doing well story russ greg we are all here for your entertainment and enjoyment and it's funny that you mention alzheimer's <laughs> because because <laughs> what a, a funny concept <laughs> um but there's something that That's i noticed that was kind of that was kind of interesting um that I, I wondered what you guys thought about um and uh it is that uh they did a study um of ronald reagan's speech patterns um towards the end of uh his presidency and they came to a determination, which I think anyone who had been paying attention to him, regardless of his speech, would have come to the same conclusion. But um, what they recognized is they found a new algorithm that allows them to determine extremely early detection Alzheimer's. And they compared him to uh, George W. Bush um, and found that there was no such affliction. I assume left out of the fact was that George W. Bush spoke just as idiotically at the end as he did at the beginning. I don't know if that's true. But um, but what they found was that his uh, Reagan's use of uh, terms like uh, he used fewer unique words. He used more things like thing and stuff and sort of these nonspecific phrases. And they've put together an algorithm that determined that that was an early sign of his Alzheimer's kicking in. So I was curious I about what why, we as why. rhetoricians thought about this. For, for some reason, that's a disturbing trend to me, even though it seems like a great predictive capability and diagnostic capability of our future robot doctor overlords. Yes. Like it, Who we welcome, it, by the way. Yeah, I, I I don't know why. I just had a very visceral negative reaction to an algorithm that claims to detect whether people are suffering from Alzheimer's or not. Well, to predict that they may be able to get it. I mean, are you concerned that people will then be like, "Listen, we know that you're you're done, so come with us and let's put you in a padded cell"? Like, what's what's? Well, I mean, I sound like that if I didn't get enough sleep the previous <laughs> night, you know. Okay. <laughs> but they wouldn't be measuring speech after speech, though. I think the point was that it was regardless of whether he had sleep or not. You know, I don't want some robot spoon-feeding me oatmeal because it caught me on a bad day. And then <laughs> I got classified within the algorithm of sickness. I suppose. I guess I hadn't thought about the uh, potential downfalls of being, you know, 
forced to be claimed that we are now suffering from Alzheimer's. But isn't it kind of old news that Reagan like had Alzheimer's for like a third of his presidency? Well, yeah, or that, that's that what I meant. But they never confirmed it. They yeah. were able to determine it through speech patterns, you know, as opposed to just like typical idiotic statements. I mean, the problem was that he okay. had always had this kind of sort of halting pattern of speech regardless, you know, and, and so I don't know if it was something that was obvious unless they started putting on this algorithm. They said, I don't know. Well, also, I mean, that's a good way to confirm the uh, the wonder of this new algorithm that you've built is you take this known quantity, which everyone's already aware of, and then you plug that into the computer and the computer goes, yes, that happened. And then everyone's like, see? Aha! Learning! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe some sort of confirmation bias, just a little. Just a little. Um, yeah. Well, fair enough. I don't know. I mean, I would be more reassured by this if there were anything that people could do for Alzheimer's. But as far as we know right now, that's not something that is really, you know, it's like... It's like if you're inexorably going over a cliff and they're like, now we have early warning for knowing when you've just left the cliffside and you're in midair. And it's like, do we have any balloons or pet? No. Okay. Well, great. <laughs> now the horror is complete. Like I, you know, I don't know. Like eventually if they're, if they come up with ways that we can actually prevent it or improve it, that'll be great to have early detection. But for now it just is like the worst news ever. So. You guys know, I, I've told you this before, that I take uh, drugs that could be construed as uh, anti-Alzheimer's drugs, right? Is that what they're calling it these days? <laughs> I'm not talking about <laughs> weed. Although, <laughs> like, yeah, you know, it, it generates new neurons, so I guess you could consider it that, but that's not what I'm talking about. No, I, I, I know. Um, no, yeah, what, what are these drugs? Are they immortal jellyfish? Are you just snorting yes, immortal jellyfish? I, yeah. <laughs> Your, that would not surprise me. Your mental image of me, which is like hunting immortal <laughs> jellyfish in the sea and smashing them to pieces and jamming them down my throat. Exactly. Grow again. That... Come back to life, jellies. Do your magic immortal jelly thing. Yeah, that is exactly um, my image of you. When you're not on stage, that's what you're doing. And probably when you are on stage. Cause it's you gotta insane. feed the beast, you know. Yeah. Uh, no, I do. I take uh, uh, one particular... Uh, pharmaceutical that is in a class of pharmaceuticals called nootropics n-o-o-t-r-o-p-i-c um, and initially they were invented for people who had suffered uh, brain injury or Alzheimer's or uh, were trying to recover from those things and then healthy later on healthy biohackers came upon these things and they're like well what happens if a healthy person takes these and they found that they got uh, sort of better verbal recall and sort of baseline better cognitive function out of it and uh it's came yeah, upon these things a euphemism for stole them from the lab <laughs> like, <laughs> that, the way you said yeah. that you're like they uh came upon these things and yeah more like, likely they were they were interns or grad students okay. working in some research facility where they had these things and they decided to pop them and see if they did better on their tests and okay they did. so basically yeah. it is Okay, mm -hmm. <laughs> and now it's very commonplace for people. I mean, this isn't. There's not a stimulant like Adderall or modafinil or the things that you hear about. Uh, Wall Street guys are addicted to because it allows them to concentrate on their incredibly boring finance jobs. Um, it's not a stimulant per se, but it is designed to increase the production of acetylcholine in your brain, and thus you get you know whatever effects that that has. And yeah. And I enjoy it. All right. It's good. 
I also so date you, Ginkgo, which is a much less controversial version of a right. similar thing. So what you're saying is you haven't actually learned anything about improv at all. You're just nope. you're just, just drugs. snorting it. Cheating. Just Cheating snort, like a bastard. Snorting the improv. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's my philosophy uh, of, of cheating. Which yeah. and the fact that you bring that up, like obviously I've worked insanely hard on right, developing that. improv skill over the last few years, but there is sort of a weird biogenesis kind of performance enhancy kind of plot line that I think about when I think about this and like the, I feel like the reason that people care so much about uh, performance enhancing drugs in the terms of sports is because we have these historical records and we know that these historical figures didn't have access to these tools and therefore we especially baseball which is taken in this important historical context we want everything to be completely fair so that Ty Cobb can compete exactly with Wade Boggs who can compete exactly with you know the contemporary version of that uh, but like in in artistic pursuits, where I think we encourage artists to do as many drugs as possible just to generate the best work that they can, and we're not like if they want to sacrifice their health or whatever other consequences there are. Like I think we're kind of fine with that societally because we're not trying to hold them up again. We're not well. Picasso only was able to do amphetamine because that's all that existed at the time. Like that that conversation never happened. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how much of that has to do with a skepticism about, like, the parameters, like, whether there's more, you know, it's this, there's nothing new under the sun concept that, like, people feel like they've distilled the few interesting plots or storylines or possibilities and that there's not, and, and I, I personally find this idea sort of farcical, but I think that a lot of people sort of feel that art is on the verge of being exhausted at all times, whereas sports are kind of by their nature and definition, like already within a given parameter or playing field, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, And so (laughs) there's not like, there's not like a creative element to that that could be exhausted. So I don't know. I think, I mean, I think you're onto something. I think you're right that like people don't see it as, I mean, there's also like a zero sum game in sports, right? Like if the Knicks are, you know, lose, then the person they're, Right, and and they do. Uh, then, <laughs> the, <laughs> then the team they're playing wins, and vice versa. Whereas, you know, in art, like theoretically, there could be many great artists, and often, like there are periods of many great artists, and and not, and it's less directly competitive. Like, and but it is like very clear that whatever substances, whether it be food or uh, drugs, that particular artists and particular particular cultures are imbibing, like incredibly strongly affects the type of work that they do and i mean and i guess that there have been studies of this phenomenon of um i don't know uh, an artist doing cocaine will produce both at a different rate and a different kind of work than an artist doing opiates and uh like uh when i read terence mckenna's food of the gods I guess that would be the work that goes into this in, into the most depth. And he argues that over the course of human history, whatever drug a particular civilization had access to influenced so many things about the civilization, whether it was coffee or tea or chocolate or cocaine or opiates uh, fueling the Renaissance. Um, you know, these things kind of evolve with us in our culture. So they kind of are tied to what kind of art we produce or or in some cultures that, you know, might be uh, more puritanical cultures, and that affects that aspect of it. But does know? it does it potentially reduce the amount of art that's being produced? Because it seems to me there's been some fairly 
you know, a number of straight edge artists and in fact cultures. In fact, sometimes cultures that are fairly straight laced have produced some pretty significant um, art in part because of people, I guess, reacting to the straight lacedness of it. But, you know, they did so without chemical stimulant, right? I mean, I, I'm just, I'm wondering whether or not chemical stimulants were a requirement for art in those places or whether it was just like, I guess I'm wondering about chicken and the egg, right? Like, was no, someone, I would say so. certainly they're not a requirement. Um, but I would also argue that they heavily influenced societies in which they, the use was prevalent and that you can probably categorically look at a specific place in a specific time and say, well, we know that um, cocaine, you know, the Sigmund Freud loved cocaine, so that affected Sigmund Freud's theories, whereas maybe Jung was more interested in psychedelics and that maybe influenced the reason that he was so against many of Sigmund Freud's theories. I see. Um, so I guess what we would need to be able to test this theory, and you would know more about this than I would, we would need to be able to determine where the sort of mo the highest concentration of marijuana use was and see how little art came out of it because they just didn't care. <laughs> like, of course, I thought what you were going to suggest is that <laughs> Russ... I thought you were going to suggest that Russ, because of the three of us, he's the most open to these kinds of experiences, should take a different drug for you know yes, a month clearly long i would do that <laughs> well that's where i thought the logical for science greg for science yeah for science and, for that, science. and that and that then he would do improv you know his oh, hectic God. improv schedule on each of these in succession and see which one produced the most interesting and humorous art but, but i'll is, tell you why i would not a... do that i would not do that because russ was the kid when you were younger that you could dare to do anything he'd be like okay so i was not <laughs> going to do that because i do not want to result in the death of my friend why i don't want a michael so richards me? moment i don't want a michael richards moment I think for, uh, the for russ the only thing that rings true with that is i was a kid in the cafeteria who would eat crazy combinations of food for a dollar I would but go, that's yes. just because you were still hungry yeah exactly <laughs> Just because I was and wanted for money, ways to scavenge food. They were never enough. Scavenge food and money. That's exactly right. I was just gonna say there is an improv show that I've been invited to but haven't gone to. Um, that I think it took place on Valentine's Day this year, where the conceit of the show was that each team that performed would all take the same drug, and then the audience would be aware of which drug this particular team was taking before oh, they would God. watch it set. So you could compare the weed team it's to like the Molly team test, to right? the amphetamines team and see what how it affected everyone's set. So were that, they that simulating sort of or actually doing oh, this? Oh, no, they were really doing it. Oh, okay. What, what yeah, I love about this that's fact... That's kind of less fun, actually. Yeah, what I love about it is that you can bring <laughs> this up, and then the fact that we can talk about it, never, it, it would be no problem. Like, it wasn't like... And we decided to do this before realizing we'd all be arrested you're like and that was fine because nobody cared i was like that no, they sounds were like white that's where we're going. they were white yeah oh these that's white, true i white forgot artists. about that if anyone's allowed to use drugs it's these people i, I forgot about that that's a good point <laughs> it reminds me of that family guy episode you guys have seen the family guy episode where uh one of them i forget who the guy is the guy in the wheelchair um is uh that's in the family guy who's he's anyway he's he gets this uh police truck and he's like, oh, yeah, it's fully automated. You have to check this out. Um, and so they walk in and he says, here, check this out. And they, they have uh, and they have the guy walk in. I think it's Peter walks into the spotlight uh, in the middle of this truck. And it's like, you know, white male, uh, proper, may pass. And then Cleveland's like, oh, let me try. Cleveland's the black character. And he's like, no, no, don't. And he gets to the thing and he's like, danger, danger. And like a, a arm picks him up upside down. And another like robot hand plants a, like a bag of crack on his person. And like shakes him <laughs> up and down as he reads of his rights. It was yeah. one of those like, yep, that's sadly, that's funny because it's true actually is what makes it funny. 
<laughs> God. So, okay, so, th- so there was this, so you had this theory, but then, I don't know, I mean, because Cole, I mean, I just got done teaching um, a couple days ago, teaching a section on uh, radical poetry, and one of the poems that I teach along with that is Coleridge's Kubla Khan, which, as uh, you guys will probably know, and Story will certainly know, uh, was done as a fragment of an opium dream. It was, yeah, uh, if, I was going to say, if I'm not mistaken, Coleridge was a big opium. He guy. was an opium. Yeah, he was yeah, an opium yeah. addict. And I mean, it actually was an opium addict because he used it. He was he had terrible gout. And so he took opium to basically, you know, relieve his pain. And then he became addicted to it because nobody knew that's what happened. Um, but uh, yeah, so he wrote Kubla Khan uh, as a fragment of an opium dream. And then this visitor sort of showed up at his door and uh, by the time he finished with that call and he came back like he had lost what the dream was but so I was using that as an example of how drugs and poetry have often gone together and I was talking about Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb and uh, you know the Beatles Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds which I don't care what the Beatles claim was absolutely about LSD they can pretend it's <laughs> that this nonsense oh no it's about a girl named Lucy no it's not it's about LSD no. stop lying it's about a mining operation in the Democratic Republic yes, of Congo yes that's... exactly that's totally what it's about you know, but it was Australopithecus Africanus was Lucy. <laughs> yes, that's exactly and, what it was. Okay. But so we talked about that and, uh, you know, and, that, and so and I had to I felt sort of bad that I had to make the disclaimer that I'm like, I don't advocate these positions because it wasn't worth losing the musicians and poets that we lost. Like, I don't think the world is a better place because we lost Hendrix at 29. You know, I don't I don't think the world is better off because of that. Um, despite his claim that he could reach sort of new levels of consciousness. I mean, Clapton thought the same thing, but Clapton somehow survived and produced tremendous work in his 30s, 40s, 50s, you know. So, um, I don't know. But anyway, it's interesting because we were just talking about this subject. Well, I, uh, yeah, I mean, and we've had the sports PED argument before, and I've always been of the point of view of if somebody is willing to sacrifice their health or their life for their art form or their industry, I think they should be allowed to do that. I mean, especially if they're doing it in front of this world stage or they're trying to compete at the highest levels of something and they make the decision that that competition is ultimately the most valuable thing and they want to sacrifice the chance of having a long life after the sport. Like, that's their choice to make. And so I've never... I mean, I see the argument of you're setting a bad example for people who follow suit and then you're making it mandatory to hurt yourself if you want to compete with these guys. But that being said, I have sacrifice. I mean, this is also why I get into an argument with people constantly about my love of boxing. Um, because PEDs out the window, like you were absolutely doing damage to yourself the minute that you were a professional boxer. Right. And you're very lucky if you escape a boxing career without brain damage and you'll probably have some degree of it regardless. Right. Um, Strangely, despite all that, and despite stories, you know, abhorrence of violence, purposeless violence or violence at all, I find it... <laughs> Suddenly you hear, boo, yeah, like yeah, story. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> yeah. really, I was really waiting for boxing. the sound yeah. Um <laughs> I find it... On the one hand, I, I see how it's exploitative, how most of the people who are in boxing come from very, very impoverished backgrounds, and they found it to be the only way for them to escape those backgrounds, the only thing they'd be paid for was as a gladiator, essentially. Mm-hmm. But I can't argue with the compelling nature of the sport, the fact that these people are putting their lives on the line for something that they believe in, for a method of supporting themselves and their families. Um, I think it's ultimately really courageous, and it, d- despite its probable stupidity, I find it really courageous and compelling to watch because there is no more ultimate reality that you can watch than somebody fighting for their life uh so you're with so you're with Hemingway (laughs) so so you were basically Hemingway 
I mean, you're with Hemingway. You you like that? You probably um, would like bullfighting. Bull no. Yeah, bullfighting. I don't love only because the the bull doesn't have a choice in the matter, and the boxer does theoretically. Listen, if you want to, if you want to, I draw the line. If you want to take away the choice of the bull, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, like bull, bulls have every right <laughs> to you know choose something different for themselves, and for you to for you to horn in on their um. Yeah, all right. Their path. <laughs> I don't I don't grieve for the matadors that get injured, but I don't think anybody does. No, that's not true. Bullfighting fans do, but I do not grieve for them. They put themselves at risk. Also, and they know their, they're families, their right. families. Right. They're probably sad. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> the, Bulls fa- the Bulls families? You guess. The no, family, the, the matadors. I don't like, care about the matadors. Screw them. I, want the I care about right. the bull. Ole, yeah. ole, ole, ole. But yeah, if it if the bull had, you know, if they signed a consent form and then... <laughs> Can you, well, you both eat hamburgers. What are you guys talking about? The bull. <laughs> the bull. I don't eat bull burgers. Story. I don't eat burgers. Exactly. I don't eat bull burgers. I'm appalled. Draw the line at our male <laughs> brethren. I only eat <laughs> criminal cows. Story. On, only on criminal cows. Place. You have no idea what the cows did that I just uh, <laughs> consumed. Oh, bull burgers. I mean, well, you know, it's funny because my dad, uh, my dad watched the Golden Gloves, which was the big amateur competition in New York um, growing up. And I, I watched some boxing matches with him, uh, Leonard, um, Sugar Ray Leonard and Marvin Hagler and people like that. Um, George Foreman a couple times. And I saw some of those fights. I saw the Tyson, you know, biting the ear fight. So I saw some of that, and there was a little bit of me that found it, you know, interesting to a certain degree. My mother was like, absolutely not. She thought it was barbaric, and and I have to say that after, you know, I, I kind of moved away from it after a while because I was just kind of like, yeah, I don't really want to see people beating their brains in. Also, it became so incredibly corrupt and just like sleazy and everything. I mean, it was the same thing, you know, in the 80s. I used to love, and this is partially because there were only three channels that we got, but I used to love watching professional wrestling on USA. I used to love watching like the Iron Sheik and Alexander Volkov and like all those mid-80s, you know, wrestlers. And that's because that was completely and totally faked. It wasn't until later on that I realized that they were all steroided up to high heaven and like, you know, they were they were all doing yeah. stuff that was damaging and the probably funny thing I is, have been doing it. Despite the, so. the fakeness of their sport, they were probably putting themselves in a great deal of risk just to look the way that they looked. Oh, yeah. And they were tremendous. By the way, they had to be tremendously athletic to move with that bulk regardless of if it was scripted. You know, I, I like mm-hmm. the people who are just like, oh, that's all. I'm like, what they're doing out there is really rough to be able to do it in a way that seems vaguely convincing. You know, that's that's not that easy to do. Um, and it wasn't until later that. So I have kind of mixed feelings about it because I, I, I don't. I don't watch boxing anymore. I have no interest in boxing anymore. I find MMA and all this mixed martial arts garbage to not be interesting. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know. I find the whole gladiator thing to be, I'm not sure that I'm a fan of that of that sort of appeal because I think beyond the fact that you question the civilization of a society that's like, yeah, we want more gladiators. But beyond that, I also feel like there's something... It feels like it's sort of going backwards in terms of how sport has evolved. You know, like we can all agree that baseball, which we all love, the baseball is a sport that has a great deal of complexity to it. And part of what makes it so enjoyable is its complexity. Story and I like college basketball much more than you do. And I think Story and I have been proven right by a tremendous tournament, incidentally. But um, more than you do, but all three of us agree that basketball is a really enjoyable, complex game where a lot of the joy of it is learning um, to be able to work angles and to be able to understand sort of rule sets and working as a team. I love tennis because of, you know, similar things. It's That's just a one person on one person. 
person, but I also love angles and sort of the structure of the shot and all that stuff. All of that seems much more advanced than just going back to just beating the hell out of each other. And I understand that some people are like, oh, well, so-and-so's technique in their footwork, it really does come down to George Foreman's technique involved hoping someone would wait around long enough for his fist to hit them, and then it was like a freight train running you over. You know, so I, I, I question just as a sport how enjoyable it is anymore, you know? I want to make a slightly strange argument really comes that to never preface that way. Here, so. um, I feel like perhaps if we all held true to the values that I would say the best, the best of those gladiatorial athletes do, the notion that they're fighting for their honor, that they're willing to sacrifice their health and their livelihood for something that they believe in for the, the for money. For money, for victory, for I mean, for greatness. I mean, they're clearly very, 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 very rich boxers who keep boxing because they box for the love of it. Yeah. There was actually, oh, I read this fantastic article about, I think he's an offensive lineman for the Baltimore Ravens who is a mathematician. And he, in the offseason, is publishing um, high-level mathematical papers. That's awesome. He, Doesn't surprise me either. Yeah. And he wrote a blog article about like his friends constantly ask him, why do you play football? You could make a living just being a mathematician. You could be a professor. You do not need to be playing football. And his answer at the end of the article was ultimately just, I love the competition. I love the notion of physically dominating an opponent on the field. And I'm frankly addicted to it. And I get a great deal of enjoyment out of it. Um, and it's completely outside the need to make money. Um, so... The argument that I'm maybe making, and it's sort of a like a glorified Klingon society type thing, which we've <laughs> talked about before on this show, is the notion that if everybody felt that sacrifice was concomitant with being a citizen of a society, or that like your sacrifice is incumbent upon you, I think we probably live in a better world than the world we live in right now, where everyone's just sort of me first and they don't want to give up anything to get anything and everything your, uh, is just free and easy. Your feelings you know? about Sparta, sir. Well, they, you know, they, they needed the Greek sense of academia <laughs> and learning, which they, they shouldn't have. I'm just, I mean, I'm just thinking from. about like the most, the, the sort of clearest example of a warrior culture that privilege, yeah. sacrifice, dying young, you know, greater than oneself, total warrior culture, kill those who can't keep up. I, it was not a very long lasting society. And the only reason we really think about Sparta now is because of sort of romantic uh, movie makers who want to keep making movies about uh, this is Sparta well, and kicking people into pits. I mean, so, so Athens was a much bigger deal than Sparta was. So maybe know? that's not the only value that your society holds. Okay, it's but one of the values. As an auxiliary value, I think it's worthwhile to say that, you know, you should you should consider sacrificing for the things that you believe in. And I don't know. Story. I, I feel. I feel like this has been a. So I <laughs> well, feel like this is a softball I, setup for you. You know, I've been, <laughs> been <laughs> avoiding the bait here. I so. <laughs> there's troll, just troll, so many. Troll. Yeah, there's just so many things. I, <laughs> so I was just like poke, poke, poke. Um, yeah. So I'm not even going to touch the violence question because, like, it's just too easy and like why. Um, but I, I think the notion here. So, I think that what. The pr the biggest clearest problem, even if you are going to leave aside the violence question and like you're good with violence or whatever, um, the clearest problem with what Russ is talking about is 
the the idea of it being a free choice. So I think that, you know, Russ and I have similar intuitions to a certain extent on free choice that like we both uh, value really, you know, nonconformity and an absolute individual choice to do things that are unconventional and buck trends and might be considered, um, you know, even a societal in some ways, but, but serve a point or a purpose that is valuable to the individual. I respect that perspective. I relate to that perspective. I think Russ and I have that in common. Uh, the problem is, is that I just don't think that most people who are in these kinds of situations, especially gladiatorial combat are in any way making a free choice. And even the argument that someone who's sort of made their millions and continues to do it is making a free choice, I think is a little bit suspect because at that point, like what else, you know, I mean, fame and ability and fortune and, and knowledge of who you are are all kind of addicting things in themselves and, and enact a coercive force. So I think it's hard to say that those people, you know, that that's a proof somehow that those people are, are making some sort of choice. I mean, even your mathematician linebacker says, um, well, I'm addicted to it, so what else can I do? So, yeah, I think that in an absolute pure sense, if we could be more sure about a lack of coercion, uh, leaving aside the violence question, which is obviously settled in my own mind, but that's beside the point, there's something, you know, possibly of value or of interest to, to what Russ is saying. But given that these people almost exclusively come from the bottom, like 10% of society um, and are often, and you know, it's like the, the thing about sacrifice. It's like what you're saying about a role model, like for everyone who sacrifices to be the best, there's 10 more who sacrifice to not be the best. Um, and those people, because of innate talent differences or opportunity, often sacrifice harder and suffer more than the people who actually get to be the best and be on top. And that's, I think, an even more problematic issue is all of the, you know, it's like at, at Rutgers. I mean, everything that possibly can go wrong in a college goes wrong at Rutgers, like on the daily. And that's just like why the school <laughs> seems to exist, near as I can tell. But one of the things a couple of years ago before, like, I mean, literally like 14 students have died um, who are currently attending this year. It's unbelievable. Like one was eaten by a bear. It's just you can't make this shit up. Yeah, I'm serious. There was like someone the other day, like a student stabbed another student in the face. They were both on meth or something. I, it's oh it's unbelievable. But um, but one of the things that happened a few years ago. Um, before the Snooki concert and other things was that one of, you know, Rutgers is, um, I think lineman or something, some football player was paralyzed from the neck down instantly, um, during a game. And he is like one of the great heroes of the state school. And it's like, this is possibly problematic. I mean, yes, it's great that he didn't die and it's great that he is like a model for perseverance and he's a very popular figure and nobody speaks ill of him, but it's also like here is yet another person who is just sort of like completely on the on the altar of the sacrifice but doesn't have any particularly of the glory to go with it. And right. there's a lot of people who suffer those kinds of injuries before they even get to a big D1 school. Um, and there's no money and there's no funding and there's no further opportunity. And they just, you know, through that lens, I think it becomes more, this is, you know, it becomes a lot more people fighting over the loaf of bread that the, the SS guard threw them at the concentration camp than for the eternal glory of Rome. Well, I mean, you know what I was thinking about was the sequence in, um, invisible man story 
where uh you know where the guy go where the kid who is going to get the scholarship um to the college goes on to the uh you know they they thinks that he's going to give a speech and then it turns out what he's actually doing is he's being asked to uh actually get this money from an electrified uh ring in the center of this arena where all these white people are watching as he kind of scrambles around to get the money Mm -hmm. for his college i mean (laughs) <laughs> that's that's about as strong the metaphor as I could imagine. It's exactly what we're talking about here. And right. yeah, I do think there's a lot of that. And that's part of the problem with boxing is that it's so dominated by promoters and by people who are, you know, the axis of promotion evil like Don King, who have been abusing, you know, their boxes for years and years and years, that I don't know that it's really being done out of some kind of free warrior choice, you know, as much as it is just kind of there. You have this stable... I mean, I don't know if, if you think there's glory in working for the equivalent of a pimp. I guess so, but I mean, I, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the, the culprit, as it as it often is, is capitalism, right? Like, I think that without a capitalistic ethos, without feeling like you had only one way of sort of sustaining your life, if there were, if survival did not feel like it were literally on the line, then I think this is a choice that people could come to freely, and we could debate the merits of saying, well, you know, if there's enough disclosure about the risk and enough, you know, what enough safeguards in place to make it feel like it's not exploitation, then fair enough. But at the point where the society still values and insists on valuing that you don't deserve to eat if you don't have a livelihood, then, you know, it's hard to say that anything is really sacrificed for anything other than survival. Right. And it's not a real choice at that point. It's just coercion. I mean, that's clearly the way that it's always been, even in the most Sparta-like societies. But what if, what if that weren't the case? What if it were outside of class? What if it were a mandatory? Like, okay, this is an this is okay. A, mandatory. This is a, you must you must box. Here's, here's, a, here's a fraught uh, <laughs> hypothetical for you guys. Uh, what about the? Oh God, no, never mind. The first thing that occurred what? to me was like the mandatory. Uh, conscription in like the Israeli army that like no matter who you are if you're a citizen of Israel. Oh, I mean they've they, clearly got their oh, we crap have our together, right? Model oh, right there. Yeah, <laughs> I was just gonna say. <laughs> Every, yeah, everyone's no being like, oh Israel. What about the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase? You guys, he had lots of money and he wanted to compete for the glory of yeah. The what about his uh, his black servant Virgil? Yeah. What what say you? See. Hmm. He could even carry across his racism into his performance <laughs> God. wrestling. Yeah, the free choice to do it. I mean, it's it's you know, and also I I mean, I understand that you guys privilege free choice above all things, but I or many things. I shouldn't say all things, but many things. But yeah, it's difficult. I think even to. I wonder a little bit if providing that option as a choice doesn't sort of shut off other avenues. You know, I mean, like it's one of the arguments that's often made about people who say, listen, the only way that these kids are ever going to get to go to college is if they get a basketball scholarship. So blah, 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 blah. And you're kind of like, well, but if it were made clear that there were as many academic scholarships available as basketball ones or fewer basketball ones, wouldn't it be more likely to incentivize these kids, many of whom are extremely intelligent and don't need to play basketball to succeed? Why, you know, wouldn't it incentivize those kids to, you know, try to get those sorts of scholarships instead? So by just providing more and more options, you know, the the higher the number of options, 
you know, can that not lead to paralysis, especially when you're talking about young people? Because that's the problem, too. A lot of these kids are getting started with boxing and everything else are doing this. They're starting very young, 12, 13, 14 in the gyms, and then they're actually going out to turn pro when they're 17 and 18 and leaving aside the, the increased risk of concussions to younger people. Um, 17 and 18 year olds, I don't know. And I know this for a fact. 18 year olds are very different people than the ones you get at 22. Like, And they've done you know studies to prove that there's enormous amounts of biological development in terms of choice and decision making so that a kid making this call at 18, I don't know that they're capable of making the choice with the same level of reason and informed consent that someone at 22 is. All right. Well, let me let me take a slight detour in this because I want to get back to the point of sacrifice and I, I, I want to. <laughs> Can't we issue, just have some sacrifice, please? I want to issue these issues that we're worried about about class and being coerced and all this stuff. So let me yeah, give you this that. hypothetical. <laughs> okay. Here's a hypothetical. You are a research scientist, um, and research you have scientist. the opportunity <laughs> to take a flowers for Algernon level drug. Oh. Where you know where this is going, (laughs) (laughs) wherein you will at the peak of taking this drug, let's say it lasts for a year. And so this is the limitless story, right? Isn't this this the limit? Okay. It's limitless, but with consequences. Okay. Because limitless is just like, I'm smart forever. I have (laughs) Yay. Okay. Okay. Uh, So (laughs) six months in after taking this drug, you will have exceeded the bounds of any capabilities you've ever had before. And there's no debate on that point. We're going to stipulate that. And is it worth it to create or invent or proceed in your research, whatever will be beyond you without this drug, in knowing that there's going to be a decline after six months and by the time the full year elapses, you'll be your faculties will be way worse than they were before you started? Well, just move back to a better school where your faculty is better. Nah. Um, uh-huh. So... Yeah, sorry. No, I so I think that that's I think that that's a valid choice. I think that that's fine. But I think that the main reason for it being a valid choice is largely because it makes a contribution to society that arguably seeing someone throw a particularly elegant right hook does not do. <laughs> <laughs> it inspires me to also classic. throw a right hook. Is a value to society story? No, no, I, I really don't. I really don't think it serves the same purpose. Like I rewatched the first round of the Hagler Hearns middleweight fight on Facebook as people post the video of it. You were not convincing like, this me. This is a boxing round. That like, this is this not a was. net drag on our societal <laughs> capabilities. Story. One time, I was walking down the street and I saw a great civil rights leader, and I threw a right hook just as I had learned to throw the right hook and save the great civil rights leader. What say you, sir? I I don't think that took place. <laughs> I don't think that actually happened. I have, however, seen Cornell West on about three separate occasions in the last month. Because he lives in uh, he lives in New York, of course. He teaches at Columbia, and I've driven past Cornell West getting in his car like three times. I don't know. This he's not a civil rights right. leader, and I don't even really like Cornell West, but I just wanted to bring that up because he's sort of related to civil rights. Um, so, I, yeah, I I absolutely think that there are all kinds of sacrifices that people can willingly make that benefit. Um, the rest of society, maybe that benefit themselves in some way that they see fit if it's a free choice to sacrifice against normal conventional perceptions of proper allocations of safety and time and a long life. I absolutely agree with that principle. I just think you've failed to come up with an example of it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I, I mean, the interesting thing about that for me is 
I, I, so it has to have then utility for you this set like could could there be a real no. choice story that doesn't lead to utility for society could there be a real choice that someone does that's just really crappy for them but it doesn't you know like i mean I, I, first of all i don't agree with this myself i'm just playing devil's advocate because as you know i am not a fan of libertarianism but could you make an argument that that it's reasonable for someone to make a choice that doesn't necessarily benefit everybody else around them like doesn't have to be sacrificed for the benefit of others yeah, as long, no, as, long I mean, as it's I, not actively harming others no i i absolutely like generally agree i mean i've gotten into this argument i'll give you an example that is a little less fabricated which is <laughs> you know people have talked about um you know without opening the whole can of worms of whether mental illness exists or whatever but like you know to the extent that i am pretty clearly a textbook manic depressive there are many people who have argued that, like, I owe it to myself to get whatever the normatively valued treatments of the society of the day are to do that so that I have a more calm and stable life that may arguably be longer and less fraught. And my argument would be that the, you know, the manic elements of life and the positive aspects of that reality far outweigh the negative drawbacks and repercussions even if those negative drawbacks and repercussions include a shorter life and a shorter life by my own hand at some point and i think that that's a very clear trade-off now i would say that a lot of that is so that i can do something that's greater for the world but i think that i would defend my right to do that even if all i wanted to do was um you know i don't know write things that i didn't show to anyone else or to not even create anything at all but just right, to right. feel those emotions at that level so yeah i i'm i'm down with that i'm totally i'm totally down with that as a as a principle um but when it seems as utilitarian as if i do this line of work that's incredibly dangerous i will get an immense um payoff and some artificial benefits of fame and otherwise i have basically no opportunity that i can imagine then i question the extent to which people are freely choosing that that said people would certainly question the extent to which i'm freely choosing this and would say that i'm disease ridden and that the disease is making the choice for me so who knows? i would only make this argument in regards to your playing of dark age of camelot so well I sure i, I mean fine. yeah it, it definitely comes with other side effects too. <laughs> I, mean, I i i have to say that i would um for my part i would not um take this drug uh that is a for me a very easy choice and uh the reason is that i am often anxious to find a third alternative because i generally disagree with binary options to begin with i think it's a good choice you've given russ but i just i don't i don't buy into it here because i think that the discovery of um, one's talents and abilities and skills, whether or not I could ever reach that same level, I would, I think, be more effective and more capable of not only using my skills as I gradually develop them as opposed to the quick development, but would be more capable of being able to, the sort of number one principle in my life, communicate and bridge gaps between what I have and what other people don't have and how to make what I have serve a purpose for them that is to say not to serve them but to serve you know to inspire to give them an understanding of something beyond where they are to oh. teach if you will so for me I would not want to take something where I was going to be even if I were more capable of articulating it I wouldn't be able to articulate it over time and for me the gradual development of these things is actually as important as the overnight wabam congratulations you're smart um, thing so not to mention that I have no interest in the end of Flowers of Algernon which is one of the most horrifying endings of any story I've ever read <laughs> just, just want to this put that just, out 
This just sparked in me a tremendous op choice case, despite the fact that I haven't debated in about a decade or more, um, which is, it is the following. You are Spaceman Dave, uh, near the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Okay. You've just entered the monolith. And for those of you who are not, aren't intimately familiar, um, it's controlled by an alien species who presumably have been helping humans along with their evolution uh, since they were a Cro-Magnon people. And the purpose of this final monolith that Spaceman Dave goes into is uh, what they do in the story is they basically slowly age him, which is symbolic of stripping him of all his memories and all his humanity so that he can be reborn as the star baby. And that uh, ultimately in the book version, he goes back to Earth and stops an imminent nuclear war that's about to happen by erasing all the nuclear missiles out of the sky with his star baby powers. Um, so the case would be, what if you've arrived inside the monolith and the aliens give you the choice of we can either do this to you where we strip you of your humanity you will cease to be the person that you are will evolve you to this next level of being and you'll have the opportunity to do things as that but you'll lose your identity completely uh, or you can continue to be spaceman dave and we'll send you on your way and like what do you do uh can can i can i develop that case slightly because it just it just triggered like I won't do it if you don't want want, want me to. Sure. Can I develop I, it slightly? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna write it and run it into <laughs> So the case. So uh, I don't know if you guys have ever played uh, the game Mass Effect. Um, actually, Russ, you probably have. Haven't you played Mass Effect? No, crazily, I've played uh, Dragon Age, which is the fantasy equivalent. Okay, by the you're same you're out of your mind for you for you yeah. not to have played Mass Effect is ridiculous. Yeah. You've got to go play that immediately. Um, you know, I'll play wait. Just go play it now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but um, uh, Mass Effect is is really really incredible series of games. And actually, story, I think you would like it also for different reasons. There is a little bit too much of the shooterness about it, but I think you would find a lot of the sort of interspecies interactions and and like philosophies are very interesting i think in this game anyway okay. um so uh i'm gonna have to spoil oh god now i can't do that because i'm uh, i'm gonna have to spoil this you part should of it. play this now i will give you the ending oh god i can't i, I feel like if i don't Player really oh, crap what am i gonna do now i want you guys okay, to play we this have game. a better up, up choice, choice case you are greg, greg about to pitch <laughs> a case to Russ. you spoil it going everybody. to spoil the game that he'll enjoy more than anything oh in the world. god oh but god. damn it <laughs> go play this game immediately and then tell me enjoyment of the game in I will, order okay. to fulfill your enjoyment of expressing the case <laughs> oh no it's a meta loop uh, what do uh, i do I wish this is where I'm like, I'll, I'll add a third parameter. Do you give your, despite your dislike of drugs, do you send your friends a drug to remove their memories in the last five minutes so that oh you God. can indulge your own it's experience? the worst of option of all of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, all right. Well, I, I won't spoil it for you. No, um, do it. But it, it do reminded it. me. Spoil it. I'm not going to play Mass Effect. Oh, it's so good, though. I'll play it and be spoiled. Just go. Are you sure? Just do it. Yes, you got to promise it. me you'll play it regardless. I will try to play it. it. I mean, like, like, I rather that this is not the reason you wouldn't play it. Uh, that's, no, that's all. definitely okay. not. I don't. Right. I, I don't mind spoilers. Okay, so at the end of this, uh, and for everybody who has not played it and doesn't want to be spoiled, just you I know, think fast they know forward, it's coming. Greg. Fast forward a few seconds. Yeah, <laughs> I think they know. So, um, uh, so in this, uh, in this game, uh, you're the everyone is basically uh, the humans are fighting against these creatures called Reapers, um, and the Reapers are this mysterious alien race. And the first one, you're not even really aware of them. You just hear about like sort of like whispers of them, and then you meet this one called Harbinger 
who's like one of the Reapers. And essentially what the Reapers are are these incredibly advanced sentient machines that are sent back um, from another universe into our universe to, as it sounds like, reap and destroy all organic civilizations that have reached a certain technological level. And at the end of that process, the ones that are left behind are the sort of, they, they leave civilizations that are still at a fairly primitive state alone. So they only destroy and reap like the advanced ones. And this cycle has happened like allegedly hundreds of times, like it's happened for thousands and thousands of centuries. This cycle has been happening again and again. And what uh, the main character discovers at the very end of this is that the reason this has been happening is because um, they had recognized the create these aliens had recognized that um, that the uh, societies around them were guaranteed to come into conflict. Specifically, organics were going to come into conflict with synthetic life. And as a consequence, they were going to destroy each other and cause uncountless, like, misery and suffering and pain and, like, destruction and, like, far worse than if they had just not existed in the first place and that they didn't have the wisdom, basically, to evolve properly. And so as a consequence, the Reapers come back over and over and over again. Okay, so in this last decision that you get made, and this was the subject of some controversy, but I actually think it was an interesting decision, um, you finally are, you've assembled this device called uh, the Catalyst, and it turns out the Catalyst is this incredible device that was created to basically shut off the Reapers, and you're given basically three options. You can either destroy um, the Reapers, so basically, you know, destroy the Catalyst and basically blow up the Reapers and make it so that the cycle stops. Um, and the alien that's explaining this to you says that if you do this, though, it's just going to cause the war between organics and synthetics is going to happen. Um, and they just say, we just know it because of, you know, math or science. We predict it, blah, blah, blah. The second option is to uh, is to take over um, the uh, Reapers. So basically to merge your consciousness with the Catalyst and to basically become like the Uber Reaper, which is sort of like what you're talking about a little bit like Russ, which is what reminded me, where you are then in charge of the Reapers and then the Reapers would then be able to, you know, like override, like take over, like rebuild planets and like, you know, they'd be working for the humans and what, and not just the humans, but like the other sentient races. And like they, they basically would become the servants of them and they're just computers anyway, but they would no longer destroy the galaxy. They'd work for them. However, in doing that, you obviously are sort of killed as an ent entity, like you don't exist as a human anymore. You're now part of this consciousness. Or the third and final option, which to me is the rather horrific option, frankly, which is synthesis, which is where you can send out um, this beam of energy using the catalyst that essentially merges organic and synthetic life um, and basically create sort of circumvents the conflict by uniting found the two Russ's groups. option. Yeah, so you create the Borg. You create the Borg. Well, yes, except that it's <laughs> as they describe it, because by this point, you've met a lot of sort of synthetics that are not bad. That's part of the point is that you meet, you run into synthetics that are in some ways more humane than the organics are. You know, that's not surprising right over the course of this epic. So you're given a choice about what you want to do. And ironically, the biggest controversy is that it's a supposed star child, a star baby that gives you this choice, which is what reminds me. And now I'm thinking that basically 2000, now I'm wondering how much they ripped off 2001 yep. now that I think of it. But they anyway, sure um, but that's so that was sort of developing the choice, and it's really fascinating. I think I think it's a really interesting series of choices. Um, and uh, I ended up choosing destruction, and the reason is because I didn't buy that they wouldn't be able to find a way to bridge differences between the synthetics and organics. Like just saying, well, it always happens this way doesn't mean that it always has to happen that way, especially when you have a new variable, which is by the way, we just work together to destroy the Reapers. You know, that's a variable that because the whole galaxy is united against the Reapers, so that's that's a variable that nobody can sort of understand so anyway that's that's sort of developing what you just brought up and it's sort of the same kind of well you know 
not playing that game now. God damn it. <laughs> you suck. It's a great game. <laughs> so good. But yeah, I mean, so what would you, Story, I know what Russ would do. So what would you do, Story? God, those are terrible options. I would probably shoot myself. <laughs> there is an option to shoot the star child, but it doesn't really do anything. It just kind of just ends then. No, I mean, not, not, not anyone else. I mean, yeah, it's, it's also hard to get to these choices because to have quote unquote earned this choice, I would have probably had to kill like 16 million entities along the way. So it's hard to put myself in the actual position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Ooh, king of star murderers. Yeah. This choice. <laughs> I've chosen peace. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's true that your character is a guy named Shepard who's like a military guy. Um, Shepard, not yeah. a very subtle, you know, Shepard, get it. Right. right, Christ figure. Anyway. Yeah, so... I... <laughs> <laughs> Your answer is blue. <laughs> yeah, that's basically... That's... Well, all right, uh, then take well, Russ's example. I the mean, decision like... maker is always the king of the star murderers. They're always the one in the ultimate control of the situation. And so we get this these weird sociopathic binary choices that are made by people who have already well, lost okay. all of their humanity. What if Nesta Spaceman yeah, Dave is the equivalent of 2001 Gandhi in the form of story, who's floating next to him in space, and he gets to be the one who advises Spaceman Dave? I mean, how intelligent are these synthetics? The synthetics are extraordinarily intelligent. I mean, okay. and, and in fact, the synthetics have they, said, I love the story's the, first the, inclination the, is like, just kill the robots. What right? Are they, well, you know, yeah, the synthetics, the synthetics have actually said. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah, because that's the, as surprising here, as Greg making the humanist cooperative choice of the humans will strive and <laughs> struggle. I mean, we're well, all very predictable, if nothing else. It it's true. <laughs> but, but listen, but, here's, but no, here's the thing about the synthetics, which may give you pause. The synthetics make it very clear that if, in the opinion of the protagonist, that he feels it is necessary that they will willingly accept annihilation if they if he thinks that that's what's going to do it but they make it clear that like he needs to make the decision not out of the typical organic choice of we're afraid of the synthetics but that because they've never given this choice to anybody else but that they want they are willing to have him give this choice because they think he understands synthetic existence as much as organic existence so in in other words they because there's yeah. a chapter in the game where he walks around with a cardboard box on his head being like I'm a robot. <laughs> I'm a robot. No, it's it's because it's because actually he ends up um he ends up at one point ending a fight between uh the Geth who are the synthetics in question or one set of the synthetics in question and these creatures um called uh the um oh god I'm going to have to turn in my badge I don't remember what they are. Um the uh, oh god anyway they're creators so, I'm so not they're playing this game they're creators not, and it doesn't matter anyway it doesn't matter no there's so much more to it that I'm not even saying but there's, there's these creators and they he breaks up this fight between one of the representative creators and the Geth the creators hate the Geth because they feel that the Geth have driven them away from their home planet and the Geth um, don't hate but like obviously want to survive so he breaks up that fight in part by sort of inhabiting the existence not physically but like sort of inhabiting philosophically the existence that this one representative Geth whose name is Legion, sort of explains to him about how these things operate and what it's like to function the way he does. So it's sort of like, as opposed to like, you guys remember Hugh, the Borg in Star Trek The Next Generation? It's not like, like Hugh was kind of a human-ish Borg. Legion is not a human-ish Geth, but he makes the Geth seem more sort of like humane in their rational thought processes than just like, it's like they're not ersatz humans, they're robots, but they're robots that sort of because He's of like the rational data. process. Yeah, but but Data is always looking for an emotion chip, and that's not what Legion is. Legion's not emotional, but Legion is rational and, and basically explains that peace is the rational way. 
So he's like Spock data. Yeah, Spock is half human though. It's not emotion. You got to take emotion out of it. Peace is the rational way. That's what he says. So that's why I'm yeah. curious, story. Because in a way, the more rational way would be to destroy the people telling you that it's more rational. <laughs> yeah, like, why? Them, them using their free will to say, like, we'll go go willingly is like... If you choose, though. I mean, they say... Sacrifice! It's... Yeah, no. I mean, you know, that's that seems like a little bit the path of least resistance. But, um, I mean, also, like... Uh, I don't know. Yeah... It's hard to say how much I value the robot intelligence. Let's be honest. Comparatively, <laughs> yeah. like they have no souls. We know this from from Go. Surprise move. Yeah, <laughs> they can exactly. die. Nothing I will happen. Like, yeah. <laughs> so that Russ, is my intuition. So Russ, you're definitely a synthesis guy, right? I, you know, I that's how I define myself. I am a synthesis guy. But remember, like, it's synthesis for everything. everybody, though. See, that's the problem. That's what makes this choice, to my mind, horrific. Because I think a lot of people felt like that's what Bioware, the company that made the game, wanted people to imagine that synthesis would be like sort of a way to split the baby. But the problem is you're literally choosing for everyone. Okay, guess what? You're now half robot or half human. And like, uh, you know, for yourself, I imagine you'd step right up and be like, hell yeah, where's my implants? But yep. for everyone else, they're kind of like, uh, you know, like, just do it. <laughs> it'll yeah, be fine. I think Russ sees it as inevitable, and that like people will stop their whinging about it eventually. Yeah. Hey, we carry our cybernetic parts in our hand right now, or in our back pocket. Soon they'll be inside our skin. It's very close. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sigh. <laughs> that sigh is so precious. Oh man. Do you so you so you would sort of go down the path of the uh, now is that the that would be the path of basically controlling the harbinger so basically the synthet the pro synthetic which is basically controlling harbinger it doesn't destroy the synthetics or the organics but it means that you merge your consciousness into that of the sort of uber synthetic and he then is able to control the reapers and cause them not to want to destroy things. Oh, see, I didn't understand see, that's, that. That's that's the, that's not the synthesis. No, that's not the synthesis approach. That's that's the control approach. That's no. The, I thought I thought you said that you became the reaper, but not that you became the reaper by virtue of becoming a synthetic first. No, 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 no. You will you be well. Your consciousness merges with it, so your consciousness becomes the controlling consciousness, and you then control the reaper. Yeah. Ultimately, I think I think that's what I would choose. Weirdly enough, is you I would, would choose that over the synth- would, the synthesis yeah, of combining. Okay, I would choose to be the moral reaper head, so that at least I could trust my own instincts in terms of who to reap and why. And that's playing that into that... your control. That's interesting because yep. you're like, I want to be in control of things. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't trust anyone else. Okay, that's funny. Interesting. So this is really it's you want to be God. Ooh, really. I might do that and shut down the reaping while keeping the reapers alive. Bingo. There we go. Oh, yeah. You don't have to destroy the Reapers. If you take yeah. them over, they just they stay alive. And so they do all the robots. They stay alive, but oh, yeah. then they stop reaping. Yeah. Okay. They, then they, then they then just help rebuild that's clearly, things. That's but clearly. You lose, but you lose yourself and, you know. I yeah, mean, that's you, fine. And if you need a, martyr, a reaping down the that's road, awesome. you have it in your back pocket. You got a reaping handy if you need it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what if you get really pissed <laughs> off? You're like, all right, time to reap. Let me reap. do this stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, that's clearly the choice. That I didn't, I didn't understand the nuance. That yeah, that's that's this, that's the obvious choice from the, the beginning. 
and the you know the thing about the uh, the Reaper thing is when you first because throughout the game, whenever they encounter the Reapers, it's obviously because it's these overwhelming like the only reason they have the catalyst is because this race, the Protheans, which were incredibly advanced race, left behind. They figured out enough to figure out plans to build something that could do these different things, um, and then they were wiped out and reaped by the Reapers. Um, but so basically, this is a a plan from like fifty thousand years before that had been left. Um, for your civilization and it had taken them several cycles before that to pick up on clues that other civilizations had left them so it's like really i mean in terms of epic scale but the reason i bring it up is every time you hear references to the reapers they say something to the effect of and i'm always in this like awesome deep voice we are your salvation through destruction and at first you just think that it's like, you know, you're like, okay, that just sounds like cool, cool stuff that doesn't actually mean anything, but it does mean something because they literally mean we will destroy you to save the chances, like to save your civilizations because they leave the civilization, like the aspects of the civilization, like the buildings, the science, they leave that stuff intact in those various places. So they oh. just destroy the organic life that kind of instituted, you know, these things, basically. By the way, in a perfect world, uh, if you're playing Mass Effect and you choose the synthesis option, it should immediately transport you into the Protoss race and you should start playing StarCraft. Or a because dude. that's what happens. Yes, yes. You just become Protoss. Yes. And then and then it should be like Tron because that should actually happen and you get sucked yes. in and yes. No, I agree. Chosen synthesis. That's interesting. Yeah, but I think I think that's sort of what it is. I think you would come down to it and you'd sort of make the decision. I it would be very hard for me to give up my individual consciousness. But you're the king of hard. the star murderers. Don't don't you deserve to like be another creature already? Haven't you I been am shepherd, not murdering Khan. murderers for long enough? I mean but that's I mean, you know Don't I, answer that question. I mean, it's like asking Alexander if he wants to murder Sof, if he wants to murder Sof, yeah, don't wait for the translation. Answer me now. It's it's like uh it's like was it Alexander was it so Socrates, right? Was Alexander's advisor for a while? Um Alexander the Great. Uh it's, Aristotle. It's like, it was Aristotle, not Socrates. Um, what, you know, I mean, wouldn't it be is Alexander the Great? You look at him and you're like, look, man, I don't, I don't. Wouldn't you learn from Aristotle? And that's what I'm saying. Like Shepard learns from these people around him, right? He learns, you know, these these from these races. So it's not as like he's not the same star murderer at the end of the game <laughs> as he was at the beginning. You know what I mean? I so, have become a more perfect star murderer. <laughs> <laughs> I am capable of bringing peace through murder. No, I mean, like, he, you know, at the very end, he recognizes that, you know, he recognizes sort of the limitations of just, like, you know, fight for anything, you know. One of the weaknesses of the game, I think, is the fact that after the fact, there are so few records left over to this one guy who is clearly responsible for saving everything, you know? So all these references are, like, to all the leaders who did the things, but then there's, like, the behind-the-scenes dude, like, Forrest Gump style, who you never actually see, you know? And you're kind of like, no, man, like, somebody would have heard of this guy. Like, like somebody would have known. So He's not in the history books. I don't believe him. Yeah. I don't know. I I think that's uh I think that's interesting though, Russ. I'm not sure. So in the example that you gave, you would clearly like merge with the th right? I mean, I assume. In the spaceman Dave. Yeah, yeah. Option? In the spaceman Dave option, you would become the Star Child, right? I guess you have to. I mean, it, it, arguably, it's not a fair case if you're setting it up as if you don't do this nuclear war. Will yeah. Does he know that nuclear yeah, war will happen? Does he know that? That's not so fair. Does he know that in the movie? Yeah. 
do this or everyone dies. Like, <laughs> it's luck. kind of not a choice. Then it's just basically no more complicated than the decision in Armageddon, where it's like, all right, Bruce Willis, you yeah. can stay on the comet or not. But does he, on the asteroid, but does he know but that it's, it's more that reasonable the world will end? if you leave out the nuclear war part and you just say you have an option, you have an opportunity to become something no human has ever been, but you'll lose your identity completely and you will have no notion of what that experience will be like other than what the star baby right. can experience. The worry about um, that kind of case is that it's always so predicated on the biases of the person in question like for you you're absolutely like hell yeah i want to become something better than i am you know and yeah I think for a i'm lot trying of people, to do that right now didn't i tell you i'm taking I'm working on tropics it. i'm trying to be a star baby a year Let's ago go. i was basing it all on my you know subscription to aol now all of a sudden i have a real chance to get this done yeah let's um, kickstart this baby let's do it so I mean, for you it'd be different, but it's difficult, I think, for a lot of people to be so dependent on that. So in the movie, does he know that nuclear war will result if he doesn't? No, notice? in the movie, he thinks he's in a hotel room and he drinks. Well, in the book, he drinks blue goo out of a milk carton because that's what the aliens imagine food looks like, since they can't see the inside of a milk carton. And then he slowly ages as they remove all of his humanity from him, and then they re- rebirth him as the star baby, and then he returns to Earth as the star baby, and that's the end of the movie. And in the book, he stops a nuclear war from so happening. So he has no choice. He like they trick they him just into do it. it. They just do it to him. Yeah, I mean he does not have a choice in the matter in the in the movie. Interesting. The it's like that right hook. You know who else doesn't have choices? Real babies. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Put boxing gloves on them. They're going to be a fighter. And that itself is a moral evil. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, well, believe it or not, people. <laughs> oh, I believe it. Moral evil or not. <laughs> Story is so disappointed in everything about this episode. So like, like the whole episode talking about boxing. The ultimate good at the end is baby boxing. That's pretty weird. <laughs> yeah. Baby boxing. What about baby beatboxing? I'm out of the womb. The young kids who have no choices and they're boxing and we're watching and we're no choices. You gotta go for the soft spot on the top of the head. Got no choices. (laughs) (laughs) Soft spot. Where's my placenta? I have no idea what was going on. Um, we hope that you enjoyed this episode as crazy as it might have been. <laughs> please let us know what you think. Please give us your feedback at themepreport.com and please tell us whether you would choose to be a star child if given the choice. Say goodbye, everybody. Doesn't anybody want MepCoin? Do things. <laughs> star child! Well, the last time I saw old man, he knew him. Star child! He was chasing a female, he knew him. As he shot past, I heard him say, She can't fly, but I'm telling you, she could run the pits of a kangaroo. She can't fly, but I'm telling you, she could run the pits of a kangaroo. Well, there is a moral to this ditty, um, better did da da da. Frost can sing, but he ain't pretty, um, better did da da da. Duck can swim, but he can't sing, nor can the eagle on the wing. Emu can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can round the pits of a kangaroo. Well, the kookaburra laughed and he said, It's true, um, better did da da da. 